Okay, before we get started, I actually just want to kind of uh, let our audience know about another opportunity they would have to hear from you and actually correct a mistake uh, or something I overlooked earlier. I I think a couple of weeks ago, I told uh, my audience about uh, Spark, that that uh, the lectures we do at Spark, and that's the Society for the Preservation of Ancient Religious Cultures. I told them to go to sparkproject.org, but most of them will probably spell Spark with a K. Uh, but since it's the Society for the Preservation of Ancient Religious Cultures, that's Spark with a C. So um, uh, Dr. Skinner is going to do a lecture on uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and and what it can teach us about uh, Latter-day Saints or the Savior. Some he'll he'll. Uh, fine-tune it, I'm sure, and, and decide exactly what he's going to talk about then. But uh, that will be on June 29th at 7 p.m. That's for Spark. Now, you, you do have to be a member of Spark if you're going to uh, be part of those lectures. And it is something that that uh, mem- membership with Spark is a, a paid subscription. It's very cheap. You can get it for as cheap as $35 a year. And then you have all sorts of lectures by Dr. Skinner or Carrie Hole or myself or uh, Matthew Gray and others. So um, uh, we just invite you, if you're interested in that at all, to go to Spark Project. That's Spark with a C, sparkproject.org, and uh, check out the things that can be part of that. And then you could have the chance to hear Dr. Skinner lecture on June 29th. Hello, and welcome to The Scriptures Are Real. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us because we believe we can apply them better when they're real to us. And we certainly need more power from the scriptures in our lives, and especially for our topic today. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I have with me as my guest today a frequent guest. In fact, we should uh, maybe make you an honorary co-host along with Lamar. Um uh, this is Dr. Andrew Skinner, who, if you've been listening at all to the podcast, you've heard before. Uh, he is uh, a fantastic scholar and um, and a fantastic person and friend. Uh, and rather than all the introductions we've done in the past, uh, maybe I'll just say in particular why I've invited, uh, and I'm so grateful that he accepted, I've invited Andy to be on for this episode and actually our next episode as well, because we're covering Gethsemane and, and uh, Calvary and uh, the resurrection in, in these two episodes. And while there are a lot of people who have given a lot of thought to this, obviously, and none of us can express everything we would like to about it, um, Andrew, uh, Dr. Skinner, has uh, written some books on this. Uh, maybe you can show that we'll put uh, links in the show notes. I uh, I have one that where they're all combined, so maybe I'll show that in the next one. But uh, he's got one book on Gethsemane and uh, another on Golgotha. And then a third uh, on the garden tomb, and uh, I will. Uh, and then those you can also buy those where all three are in the same book. That's the version I got uh, because I just liked having having it that way. Um, and we'll put links to those in the show notes. And I, f- I figured out how to make the links work, uh, unlike just a, like a couple of weeks ago when they didn't work very well. Um, but uh, he has given so much thought to this, and I have been uh, with him. Uh, in Gethsemane and at the garden tomb, uh, well, the traditional garden tomb, uh, and in the the Holy Sepulchre, uh, and have just really been grateful for the profound thought that he has put into this. I, I would imagine even before the books, but when you have to write something, it becomes even more, uh, you have to think about it in, in a different uh, way and, and you get more thoughts. And so I am grateful to have Dr. Skinner with us. Thank you and and welcome, Andy. Oh, thank you so much, Kerry. Um, may I just say thank you for the privilege of discussing uh, these events, which form the heart and soul 
of the gospel or the good news of, of Jesus Christ. I'm so grateful to know uh, about the events of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ as described in the four gospels. Uh, we'll focus uh, on probably Luke 22 and John 18, but we'll try not to neglect uh, the other insights that are provided by uh, Matthew and John, uh, Matthew uh, in particular, and Mark, yeah. and Mark, um, and uh, and so please know of my gratitude for the privilege that it is to to talk about these things, which, as you have said many times before, matter most. Yeah. And uh, and I, by way of introduction, I think I would just. Um, articulate what I think our readers already know and feel, and that is that it would be impossible to overstate the significance of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, those last hours of his life. In fact, uh, I would say, I, I find at least for myself, that it's impossible to even uh, uh, come close to stating the importance. I can't overstate. I can't even get to where I'm, I'm stating it uh, right. as well as I. I always say this. I feel like I don't understand adequately or appreciate adequately. And then I feel like I can't express how much I do understand and appreciate. Yeah. And so, you know, I feel like I've got a double negative as I'm, as I'm coming to approach this most sacred and most important of topics. Well, I appreciate too uh, the way that the Book of Mormon testimonies dovetail with what we have in yes. the gospels, the three synoptic gospels, and then John's unique gospel. And I'm, continually drawn to those statements in Alma chapter 34, where, in which he talks about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ as uh, an action that could only be performed by God. And that, of course, is the Son of God, who has to be an infinite and eternal and uh, perfect being uh, in order for uh, the atonement to do what it does for each and every one of us, whether we're believers or not, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ operates in our lives. And um, it may sound trite at this point because a statement has been used by Elder Bruce R. McConkie, uh, who was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve until his death in 1985, who said, the atonement of Jesus Christ really is the most important event in time or all eternity. And I was in a meeting one time and remember him raising his big hands and saying, from creation's dawn through all the ages of a never-ending eternity, nothing ever has or ever will equal uh, in importance the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if I may, I'd like to uh, help us understand the magnitude of the atonement by turning to... Uh, the last book in the New Testament and the next to the last chapter written by John, the apostle, who says in chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. Of, of, of Revelation we're talking about? Revelation, the book of Revelation, that uh, last testimony of the apostle John. And this is in Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, who says this, quote, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, 
Behold, I make all things new. I am so grateful to know the magnitude of the Savior's atoning sacrifice. What the atonement does is it rescues us from physical death. All of us face uh, mortality. Uh, All of us face spiritual death or separation from our Father in heaven to one degree or another, uh, even in mortality. And the atonement rescues us from that, and it rescues us not just from sin, but from all sorrow, all suffering, all unfairness, injustice. It puts right what the fall of Adam and Eve put wrong or created. So I I hope I can convey, as you have said really articulately, um, how I feel about the atonement as well as the information that's conveyed in the gospel accounts. And, uh, and I'm grateful for, again, for this privilege. Thank you very, very much. Um, with that brief foundation, I'd like to turn specifically to Luke chapter 22, which is uh, one of the passages that is highlighted in our um, Come Follow Me experience. Uh, And Luke 22 begins by describing events leading up to the Last Supper and the institution of the sacrament, which I know that you have talked about before. And uh, Luke 22 um, helps us to to see that that completed transition from what the Jewish people called the Seder meal or what Christians sometimes refer to as the Last Supper— transformed into the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, apparently uh, completing that transformation uh, after the drinking of the third cup of wine uh, during that uh, Thursday night before the Savior goes to Gethsemane. Yes, uh, the, the he, cup of wine that you drink after dinner, right? That's exactly. our, our clue. That's the one clue we get. Yeah. As the cup after supper. And of course, uh, those that might be uh, a little bit familiar with uh, with Passover meals as uh, as participated in by our Jewish uh, cousins, our Jewish brothers and sisters, there are four cups of wine that are consumed during the Passover meal. And apparently that cup after supper uh, is the is the act that completes uh, the transformation, but also foreshadows events that are going to occur a little later in the evening, which only Luke will record. So this verse 20, as readers and and, uh, listeners will remember, Luke chapter 20 of, of, excuse me, Luke chapter 22 of verse 20 says, quote, likewise also the cup after supper, Jesus saying, This cup is the New Testament, or a better translation, New Covenant, Mm -hmm. in my blood, which is shed for you. And that's exactly what Luke will go on to describe in chapter 22, is the shedding of Jesus's blood in Gethsemane. So I, I really do love to begin our discussion about the events of the atonement with Luke chapter 22. Uh, after the transformation of the Seder meal into the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Jesus mentions his betrayal. 
uh, in Luke chapter 22. And interestingly enough, out of that mention of Jesus's betrayal uh, develops a dispute among the apostles uh, uh, about uh, who is or might be considered to be the greatest among them. And Jesus quells that strife, that dispute, by teaching a very powerful lesson on servant leadership and helps us to appreciate that those that serve others are of equal status in God's eyes and that God confers upon those who serve others a great kingdom, just as the Father had conferred and has conferred upon Jesus a great kingdom. And and maybe I could just uh, interject there if it's all right. Uh, I don't want to take us too far aside, but I think that there is something uh, significant here in two ways. So one, if we could just understand this principle, this is, uh, it makes me think of section 121 and the idea that as soon as men get a little authority, uh, as they think, right, that they, they try and use it for themselves. We, it is uh, the tendency of the fallen man and the world around us certainly reinforces that leadership is about power and prestige and being elite. And, uh, and it seems like his apostles kind of were thinking that and several times they've thought that and he's had to teach this lesson several times. Uh, and he is very, very clear. We have to have a mind shift. We have to just reorient ourselves and understand that being a, a, any kind of a leader is not about you being more important than someone else or, or having more prestige. It is about serving them. It is about doing for them what, what needs to be done. And that, that uh, principle, if we could just get that in, would revolutionize us in so many ways, and it's important in and of itself. But I think it's particularly important here because Christ is about to demonstrate it in the most profound way, where here Christ, our king, right? We, uh, he's just been acknowledged as king by them, and I acknowledge him as my king. Um, our king is about to go descend below all of us and serve all of us. And so he's, he uh, is not only setting the example, but uh, understanding what he's taught them there helps me better understand what he is about to go do. And, and so I think that whether, uh, you know, we find this story or, or this kind of contention happening uh, elsewhere in other synoptic writings, uh, I don't know if it also happened here or if Luke recognized this profundity and placed it here intentionally or something, but uh, I think that understanding this right here just before he's going to go and be the greatest servant of all uh, really helps us understand and sets the table for understanding the uh, atoning sacrifice. Absolutely. And, and I think uh, the Doctrine and Covenants is pretty clear uh, about the necessity of unity among yes. all disciples. Uh, and Jesus uses some of the strongest language that he uses ever in the Doctrine and Covenants when he says, be one. And if you're not one, you're not mine. And that's yeah. the, the heart of the dispute is, uh, uh, you know, it's not having the leadership, but it's having more of the leadership, as you say, the prestige and the power than your fellow human beings. And Jesus says, all are alike when it comes to those who serve. And in fact, he says something else, as long as we're on this subject, uh, while he's uh, correcting his apostles, he says, uh, just as you, meaning the apostles, have shared in my earthly trials, 
so you shall share uh, thrones uh, as well as, as me. And you, in fact, will continue to serve because you're going to become the judges of the 12 tribes of Israel. So forget this business about who's the greatest and understand that uh, in the Lord's eyes, it's who serves and all are equal uh, in that regard. So I, I appreciate the fact that you mentioned that. Uh, it seems to me that unity uh, among the disciples, whether you're an apostle or a, a primary worker, and I don't minimize the primary workers, as we've talked about before. Yeah. If the bishop doesn't show up to meetings, we can get by. If the nursery leader doesn't show up, we've got chaos. Yeah. It's kind of an yeah. inverted uh, uh, system there. But it, it's it's so important for all of us to recognize all are truly alike unto God. And, and then uh, Jesus turns his attention, his specific attention, to Peter, the chief apostle, uh, maybe precisely because Peter is the chief apostle, uh, telling Peter that Jesus has prayed for Peter that his faith will not fail. And, uh, and Peter responds with, I think, something that he does demonstrate in the coming events that night. Peter says, I'm ready to go with you to prison and even to death. And, and in light of that statement, and in light of what happens uh, just hours away, I think we need to, to think about what that really means uh, and think um, if, if we are to really take seriously the idea that Peter's uh, faith flagged for a minute when he faces this servant girl in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. Uh, if Jesus is praying for Peter's faith, and Peter says, I'm willing to go to the death for you, and then when the um, police force, the temple police force, comes to arrest Jesus at the entrance of the Garden of Gethsemane, the first thing Peter does is he whips out his short sword, and he lops off the ear of the servant of the high priest, and he's surrounded by an, a, a whole contingent of people who yeah. have weapons. They're a weaponized force here. Do we really take seriously that, you know, that Peter failed in, in a moment of weakness? So I, I, I guess it boils down for me to a question. Was Jesus, when Jesus says to Peter, in this same uh, scene that we've been discussing in Luke 22, um, after Peter says, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to die for you, Jesus then says, Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times, thrice. Uh, is that a prediction or is that a command? And, I, and I'm not here to answer that question. I'm just asking in the context of all we know about Peter on this particular night, as well as of other events, uh, what do we think? Did Peter's faith fail him at any time? Jesus prayed for it. I would like to have Jesus pray for me. <laughs> yeah. know, it might work. So anyway... And I, th I think President Kimball suggested that that may be yeah. the case. Um, I, I have some ideas. Well, I guess when we get there, I'll, I'll share some of yeah. my ideas as well. But uh, I think you're right. This <laughs> Peter does not seem to be lacking in willingness to stand up for the Savior. 
not at all. And, and of course, you're quite right. One of my very favorite talks of all time is the one given by President Kimball entitled Peter, My Brother. Yeah. Anyway, so we we have some some questions to to think about to ponder deeply and uh, and uh, i i love uh as you have said that peter's willingness is right at the surface at all times there yeah. there i don't can't think of a of a more humble and yet more forceful powerful and yeah impetuous leader uh than than peter um after events uh, in in the upper room uh, conclude, Jesus and the eleven apostles, because uh, remember, uh, Judas has already left to cement or to put in place the his deed, which is at the heart of the conspiracy to take Jesus's life. He's gone. Jesus and the eleven leave the upper room and head to the Mount of Olives but not before singing in hymn together one last time, according to um, Mark chapter 14, verse 26. And, uh, and President Packer, Boyd K. Packer, has offered an interesting insight on this very moment and this very passage uh, from a general conference address way back in 1973. P. President Packer says, quote, there are many references in the scriptures, both ancient and modern, that attest to the influence of righteous music. And here's the, the, the all-important lesson. The Lord himself was prepared for his greatest test through its influence. For the scripture records, quote, and when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives, unquote. That's Mark 14, 26 that we're uh, talking about. So I think if I were the ward music director uh, or the ward choir director or branch choir director, which uh, I will I, never be, by the way, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I won't either. And people are grateful for that yeah, uh, inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I would do Xerox this passage and plaster it all over the church to, <laughs> to, help, to help people understand the significance of worshipful music, the significance of righteous music in our worship and in our relationship to our Father in heaven and to his Son, Jesus Christ. So point or lesson here, the Savior prepared for the spiritual onslaught uh, that was his experience in Gethsemane uh, by partaking of the sacrament with his apostles and by singing a hymn together. And the question then comes to me, how do you prepare for life's great challenges? Well, if it's good enough for Jesus and the apostles, it ought to be good enough for me. I take the sacrament or I strive to take it worthily every week. And I engage in a kind of worship that only comes about by singing the hymns, the sacred music uh, of the restoration, as well as uh, the the hymns that are found in the book of Psalms, quite frankly. It's a, Book of mm -hmm. Psalms is the ancient hymn book of Israel. So, and, and certainly that's what the Savior was singing from when he went was from yeah. Psalms. So, well, yeah. and in fact, I think according to tradition, we know what the what the hymn was that they sang. Yeah. It's uh, it's the Hallel Psalms, Psalms one thirteen through one eighteen, and in particular, um, Psalm one eighteen, which is a messianic hymn in content on steroids. Right? I mean, yeah. this is yeah. a powerful messianic 
him. And it's also uh, that psalm which contains the Hosanna shout, and it contains uh, the phrase um, uh, which talks about um, blessed, uh, blessed be he who cometh in the name of the Lord. Yeah. And it, in fact, contains uh, a passage uh, that Jesus himself quoted during the last week of his life, uh, wherein uh, it, Jesus talks about the fact that he was rejected using Psalm 118, quote, the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. Or in other words, the Messiah, Jesus, that has been refused is to become the chief cornerstone of the kingdom, as the Apostle Paul clarifies in Ephesians chapter 2. You know, that great passage where it really is speaking to all of us who are converts, all of us who yeah. are disciples, you know, um, uh, it, it's just, a, it's a, it's a magnificent image. And that particular passage is used quite a bit. So anyway, all of that is to say, we think we know even what hymn it was that, that they sang. Uh, in Luke chapter 22, verse 39, then describes Jesus leaving uh, the upper room, entering into the garden of Gethsemane, although Luke does not mention it by name. He does say that they go, they head to the Mount of Olives as a customary or habitual occurrence. Mm -hmm. uh, the exact wording of Luke, quote, and he, meaning Jesus, came out, came out of the upper room and went as he was wont, W-O-N-T, uh, or as he was accustomed or by habit even, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. So we learn that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he went often to Gethsemane. This was not the first time that Jesus had entered Gethsemane. And this is corroborated by um, uh, John chapter 18. We can inject here. John chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. Uh, I've got my big clunky scriptures out because I, I just can't quite seem to not have them by my side all the time. I know I'm, I should become more modern and try to use the, my electronic device, but I just can't get rid of my friends here. <laughs> this is, uh, this is John chapter 18 verses one and two. When Jesus had spoken these words, he meaning the teachings in the upper room. Uh, yeah. The, the prayer for unity that speaks to what you were talking about yeah. earlier. Yeah. And John and and just preceding chapter, John chapter 17, the great high priestly prayer mm -hmm. or the great intercessory prayer. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Jesus went to Gethsemane, I think, whenever he was in Judea or or, or in Jerusalem, and uh, and this then helps us to understand how Judas will later on show up with the temple police force at uh, at the entrance to Gethsemane because he's been there so many times before. He knows that that's the accustomed thing to do or the habitual thing to do. Yeah. And if I may speculate just a minute, one one wonders if in fact. Uh, going to Gethsemane so many times as he did, he uh, he had 
a visionary understanding of what would unfold the last evening of his mortal life. And I, and I really do think uh, that that's true. I also think that uh, Jesus is in Gethsemane when the apostles say to him, wow, Lord, teach us to pray the way you pray. Well, it's because he's been Gethsemane. In, in Gethsemane, he knows what's going to come at the very end of his life in that very place. Yeah. So that's that's where this uh, two-part atonement begins to unfold as Jesus enters the Garden of Gethsemane uh, in the on this beautiful hill overlooking the Temple Mount called uh, called Gethsemane. And maybe I can just also interject yeah. just a little more speculation as I, I mean, I try as I try and make the scriptures real. I often am trying to put myself in the place of the people in the scriptures, and that includes the Savior. Although sometimes I feel funny about putting myself in His place, but but it does help me understand what's going on a little bit uh, sometimes. And um, it, it, as you said, it's very clear that this is a place they've been to often and at prayed together. And he has taught them. And my guess would be that they've had a number of very sweet experiences there. Yeah. And if I think of myself and I know I am about to go and do the hardest thing I've ever done, I want to go to a place that is comfortable to me, a place that I have good uh, feelings about, uh, that I, I just think of as a good place for me. And I suspect that's part of what has happened there. I think you're probably right that as he's been there, he understands what will happen there eventually. But at the same time, part of why he's going there at the end is because he's already had a number of good experiences there. And so he associates that place as a place where he can go and have the 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 best surroundings for the uncomfortable experience. Yeah, and uh, with those great experiences, of course, comes uh, the influence, the the uh, the lifetime influence of his father. There was never a yes. time when he wasn't uh, didn't feel the influence and the power of his of his literal father with him, except for the last time that he goes to Gethsemane and the tables are turned, and I think that that's part of the shock as he's yeah. had powerful experiences with his father in Gethsemane and now things are completely different and and we'll I I'll refer to this again but I I think that's part of the experience that Jesus has so the synoptic gospels all describe Jesus uh, separating himself from his apostles um as he enters into the garden uh but not before he commands his apostles quote, pray that ye enter not into temptation, unquote. Uh, at first blush, it seems like kind of a, an odd thing to pray for because he's the one that's going to be experiencing uh, the, the almost overpowering temptations that are, you know, being thrown at him and, and, and the, the, the tremendous uh, agony he's going to suffer. So why does he tell his apostles to, to pray so that they don't enter into temptation? Well, I think we know that's because there's somebody else in the garden that night uh, who is hurling at Jesus and these special witnesses of the name of Jesus Christ, hurling every horrible thing he can to thwart the plan of our Father in heaven, because this really is the core of the plan. Yeah. So um, I, I oftentimes think about that. Yeah, Jesus is going to be tempted 
And in fact, so much that Jesus says, I'd really prefer not to do this. Father, please yeah. remove this from me. Nevertheless, not what, what I will, but what thou will. Well, but also the apostles have been, uh, are coming under uh, the influence of Lucifer. And I would just point the readers, we don't need to, to read this, but I just point the readers or, or listeners to the Joseph Smith translation of Mark 14, verses 36 to 38, where we come to understand that Lucifer takes his toll on the apostles. And part of the reason that they're asleep is because they're sad, uh, they're depressed, they're wondering if, in fact, this is the Messiah that they've invested three years of their life to be with. So I think that that's a, a very real thing. There's another person in the garden that night. Um, almost immediately, and, and this is not in Luke's account, but it is in, in Mark's account, almost immediately as Jesus enters the garden, he starts to feel some amazing but some horrible feelings. In fact, yeah. Mark says that he is he begins to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And I think we all can appreciate what it is that's causing Jesus to feel very heavy, to feel weighed down, as the text implies, almost to the point of being crushed into extinction. The weight is so great. And that weight, of course, comes from the sins of the entire human family. Everyone who's lived on this earth uh, and all of the sins that everyone has committed begin to weigh down on Jesus to crush him into oblivion, or at least as he's starting to feel that way. And, yeah, and I, I would add, I mean, we learn from uh, several places in the Book of Mormon, I think it's the sins and the sorrows and the infirmities and the sicknesses and uh, everything else. And and like you, I am I'm touched by that phrase, he was sore amazed. So this is, is Christ, yeah. uh, who... Uh, we know is is all knowing, and yet he's having a mortal experience, and so it seems that even he is surprised. And this is at the outset, not at the the pinnacle, right. but at a, the outset. This is immediately when he yeah. when he enters the garden, and he's surprised at how hard and how difficult it is. Well, so Jesus is starting to feel uh, the cumulative weight of the sins of every human being that has lived or will live on this earth. As you point out, as the scriptures point out, Alma 7 is a great reference. He begins to feel the cumulative weight of all of the sorrow and the suffering and the anguish and the unfairness and injustice that all of the members of the human family will feel. But we're not done yet because section 76 verse 42 tells us that Jesus redeems all that he created, all of the worlds that he created in the direction of the Father now are uh, obvious at this moment in history, you know, where eternity is suspended in this one moment in this tiny garden in a um, not very well-regarded outpost of the Roman Empire. And so uh, Jesus then, uh, no wonder Jesus then feels this sore amazement. I like... Uh, I like the definition that uh, Father Jerome, Jerome Murphy O'Connor, Father Jerry, who was a, a premier uh, archaeologist, biblical archaeologist, lived in the Holy Land for much of his life. I love the, the definition that he gives to uh, uh, us 
the the word that the K, King James translators uh, translated terrified surprise or uh, uh, sore amazed is exthombasthai. And I know that the, the Greek doesn't elevate anybody to new spiritual heights, but uh, Father Jerry says it literally means terrified surprise. Mm-hmm. And so what is it that causes the terrified surprise? Yes, surprise we, we get, but why the terror? And uh, certainly it has, in large part, not completely, but in large part, it has to be the fact that now for the first time in his existence, Jesus has felt through his own experience, what sin feels like. Never before has he felt the physical experiential effects of sin, not only on the spirit, but on the physical body. And as as Luke will describe, the, the sin, sorrow, and suffering, this infinite experience takes its physical toll on Jesus, which we'll talk about in, in just a moment. So, uh we we come to appreciate a statement by um elder neil maxwell of the quorum of the 12 who talks about gethsemane as uh infinity multiplied by enormity mm. and I, I may have the the two inverse there but infinity or an enormity multiplied by infinity and that seems to me to be uh a large part of the cause of the terrified surprise because Jesus never sinned before. He never felt the effects of sin. He knew intellectually about sin, um, but he he did not know from his own experience. And that's one of the great contributions of Alma 7, where yeah. Alma says he suffered these things so that he could know from his own experience, what sin was like, what yeah, according to the flesh, right? According to the flesh. Yeah, exactly. So, so that he could sucker his people, right? I mean, that's part yeah. of it is so that he, he's experiencing it, I think, because it has to be experienced as part of, of atoning for it, but also so that he is able to come to our aid and our comfort when we are in those hours of need. Well, and the word sucker is an interesting one because it literally means to run to the aid of yeah. someone, to run to the assistance of someone. It's not a passive word. No. And and it and it there's an immediacy about Jesus's experience relative to our own now. He knows we don't as 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 Paul once said, we don't have a high priest who cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmity, but rather Mm. we have Jesus, the high priest, who was in all points tempted, touched with by the challenges that we all face. And so because we know that he did that, he experienced it in the flesh for himself. We can come boldly. I love that. We can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. So this is, this is, part of the Gethsemane experience. And, and, and I'm, I'm grateful to know that. Yes. And, and I, I, I mean, I don't want to belabor the point uh, too much, but it, for me, it's at least worth thinking a little bit about all of the different kinds of things. So you've talked about uh, the, the sorrow and the, uh, the pain of sin, right? So sin carries a pain in and of itself. 
Uh, when you do things that go against godliness, there is suffering that is automatically part of it. But then there's always also this crushing guilt at some point uh, and so on. But beyond that, the Savior must be uh, feeling uh, for every individual uh, who has ever been uh, uh, abused emotionally or physically or, or sexually or in any way, the the crushing pain that they feel and the the feelings they feel about often about people feel about their own worthlessness when they're subjected to these kinds of things regularly um and uh the the sorrow that comes from losing loved ones and the the sorrow i mean we could go on and on and on about all of the tragedies of this world and this world is full of tragedies it's a fallen world and the the amount of tragedies that are going around are staggering, and yet the Savior felt not just all of it at once. I love how Sister Okazaki and Elder Bateman both talk about this. He fills it infinitely, all of it, and also individually, a stream of individual pain, and it's truly beyond my ability to comprehend. Well, it seems to me that uh, that when Section 88 talks about Jesus descending below all things, his pain, his sorrow is deeper yes. than the deepest pain or sorrow that any one member of the human family has experienced. And and uh, if I may, um, this is a personal comment, but... Um, one of the things that I uh, came away... Uh, appreciating from the pandemic experience was the fact that uh, all of the feelings that that you know this generated and all of the heartache and the challenges and and uh, the sickness and all of that that the isolation kind of things, and, the isolation yeah. Jesus descended below all of that and my appreciation for him grew exponentially when I realized Jesus had his own burdens to carry. Yeah, you you mentioned the fact that uh, uh, that uh, Jesus knew what it was like to lose a loved one. Well, he did lose a loved one. Yes, he did. Jesus knew what it was like to be hounded by those that wanted to take his life from the very beginning uh, of his life. Jesus knew what it was like to be homeless. He said, "The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head." All of these things, Jesus knew what it was like to be part of a part member family, if you will, uh, because his brothers did not believe yeah. uh, who that he was the Messiah, John chapter 7, so on and on. And, and to on. be unjustly accused and so on and so on. All yeah. of that. These are personal things, personal burdens that he carried, and yet he is, he is now, at, because of a promise he made to us and to his Father in heaven, he is now taking upon all of those of our personal burdens— yeah, crushing in, loneliness, in, whatever. In this yeah. infinite experience in in Gethsemane. Yeah. So, um, the the uh, uh, record, both Luke and uh, Mark, um, indicate that uh, things get so bad that he cries out uh, to his father. I, I uh, frankly enjoy Mark's account because it preserves the Aramaic words, the Aramaic Abba, uh, yeah. which, um, which to me, I think 
connotes a, a special relationship. It's almost like uh, calling someone daddy or papa. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it, it, when I hear Abba, I hear daddy. Yeah, and and uh, and I know that there have been things uh, written about that to kind of diminish that uh, that understanding, but I still believe that it's true. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, he, this is a real son in crisis calling out for help from his real father, please remove it. It's worse than I thought it was going to be. And that's the one thing that heavenly father can't do because this really is the core of the, of the plan, but he does send an angel from heaven. According to Luke's account, we don't get that in the other accounts. Yeah. And uh, uh, Elder McConkie believes that uh, that angel was none other than mighty Michael, Adam, who yeah. was the father of the human family. And I thought about that. Why Michael? And and I guess one of the things I've come to realize is that if you're Michael, if you're Adam, and if you're Eve on the other side of the veil watching the suffering or understanding the suffering of your great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, you know, how many generations from, from Adam to Jesus there are. If you're watching one of your own descendants repair that which had been brought about by your actions in, in the fall, wouldn't you want to be there to thank him for mm -hmm. rescuing the entire family? Uh, and I, and I, I, I love that uh, that image of of Adam being there to try to console his descendant, because as Adam all as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall be made. It's Jesus Christ who is the great repairer uh, of of the fall. And, and, and I that, I so uh, oh sorry, go ahead. No 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 I please. I, I'm just going to be. Uh... I don't. I have uh, other thoughts as well. So I, I that makes so much sense to me, and uh, I think that's very, very possible. But I've had uh, at odd times again, just kind of putting myself in in his place. Uh, another thought, and of course we don't know who it is, but yeah. uh, uh, and certainly Elder McConkie's opinion carries a lot more weight than mine. But I've thought if it were me, and I'm calling out to my Father in Heaven, my my Abba, uh, but He's going to be able to send someone to comfort me. Who would I want? I'd want my other Abba. Yeah. Uh, there are times where I've wondered if it's not just, if it's not, hey, dad, the one who took care of me when I was a little boy yeah. and and things were tough. And who knows? I I, I don't know. Um, but uh, there's a, there are times where I wonder, and, and those are only thoughts that really that have occurred to me since my own father passed. And, uh, and mm -hmm. I've thought, who would I want to come to me when things are tough? Well, that's who I'd want. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Uh, but the whole idea of father's, um, uh, brings up for me another really important point. And you've, you've, uh, talked about this line where he calls out for his father, please remove this cup. And I'm so touched by that. I mean, it, the way I, I read it, he's saying, this is harder than I understood it would be. And I don't want to do this. And if there's another way to do this, can we do it that other way? I, this, this is so hard. I'd really like to stop doing it and do something else if it's possible. But his final line, uh, at least in the Luke account, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, indicates to me, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it indicates to me that at that hardest moment, when it was too much, when it was more than he wanted to do, the thing that saw him through was his love for his father in heaven and his determination to do his father in heaven's will. 
Um, that's what saw him through when nothing else could. And I suspect that that's a lesson for us, that in our hardest hours, the thing that will get us through is our love for God and our desire to do his will. And if we haven't cultivated that love for God, then we're going to be missing something when we really need it. Um, and and maybe that's reading too much into it, but it seems to me that that's what brought the Savior through when nothing else would. Yeah, I, I, I too, I agree with you, uh, had similar thoughts. I also think that uh, sometimes you do hard things because you simply said you would yeah you you promised that you would and so you you plow through it because you're a promise keeper you're a covenant yeah. keeper and, yeah. and, 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 and I, I think those are intertwined his he promised yeah. his father he would do this and so if this is what you need me to do father i'll do it because i said i would i love you and i'll keep my word to you well and 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 there's this intriguing uh verse in section 19 of the doctrine and covenants where jesus is trying to help us see that uh, there's a difference between mere payment for for broken laws and complete redemption which he is offering if we don't choose redemption through the atonement of christ then we must suffer even as as Jesus suffers. And then he says, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. And then there's this dash. And I wonder if, it, in fact, that's not a reflection of the fact that Jesus, with his perfect memory, is remembering with exactitude what happened in the garden, and he simply cannot go on describing it because it causes him to relive it. It causes, you know, all of the, the, the thoughts and the feelings that he had in the garden to erupt again while he's talking to the prophet Joseph Smith. This mm. is bad stuff. This is hard stuff, harder yeah. than, than we can possibly imagine, uh, as you as you said. Um, I, I want this quotation i think is pretty powerful it's come from elder neil maxwell and it speaks to a point that uh, that we've made earlier quote imagine jehovah the creator of this and other worlds astonished jesus knew cognitively what he must knew do but not experientially he had never personally known the exquisite and exacting process of an atonement before the cumulative weight of all mortal sins past present future pressed upon that perfect, sinless, and sensitive soul, all our infirmities and sicknesses were somehow, too, a part of the awful arithmetic of the atonement. In, his in this extremity, did he perchance hope for a rescuing ram in the thicket? I do not know. His suffering, as it were, enormity multiplied by infinity, evoked his later soul cry on the cross, and it was a cry of, forsakenness uh, that seems to me to be to capture uh in, in a in a succinct way all of the things that we've been talking about for the for the last few minutes and that is um that is from elder neil maxwell uh where he he uses that amazing line the awful arithmetic yeah. of the atonement just uh, after having kind of explained the arithmetic with the enormity times infinity right? yeah 
Uh, And I'll say that uh, no one has uh, shaped my understanding of the atoning sacrifice as much as Elder Maxwell has uh, in some of his books, like uh, Not My Will But Thine and others. Exactly. I I concur. I believe that uh, with all of my heart. Well, unfortunately, uh, there was no relief, real relief. Uh, There was no subsiding of the pain, the anguish and horror. Uh, Luke is the one that that we're so grateful to. He says uh, in verse 44 of chapter 22, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So uh, for the sake of time, two lessons for me that come out of that passage. Number one, all prayers are not of equal intensity and that's okay because that was true for the Savior. He prayed more earnestly than he ever had before. And, and, I, uh, uh, and, and I think that that um, goes towards alleviating any guilt that we might have that we're just, we're not praying hard enough. We're not, you know, we're not doing enough. Well, all prayers are not always the same. And that was the case for Jesus. And then, the idea of great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Uh, There are some, again, powerful statements from others that help us to appreciate uh, Jesus's bloody sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, again, one of those is Elder Maxwell, as you have uh, referred to him. Uh, He made uh, the following statement, uh, which is, uh, is pretty amazing if I can find the statement here. Maybe I'm not supposed to read it. It'll it'll come. That's that's curious, isn't it? Okay. Well, it's uh, basically um, the, the statement is that Jesus always had and always deserved his father's full approval. But when he took our sins upon him of divine necessity required by the demands of justice, Jesus experienced instead the fierceness of the wrath of almighty God. Uh, Quoting section 76 verse 107 and 88 verse 106 elder maxwell in his book lord increase our faith helps us to appreciate uh the 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 mixture here of of uh, mercy and justice and the requirements that had been been put in place by our father in heaven's plan I, and i that helps me to appreciate uh again, the intensity of Jesus, what Jesus was feeling. He always had and always deserved the Father's uh, full approval uh, he, and, and his love. But by divine necessity, when he took upon him our sins, he experienced the fierceness of the wrath of, of Almighty God. And I think that's, uh, that's pretty clear in the Book of Mormon. Justice yeah. is an exacting master. 
and Jesus then steps in and takes the full force of, of justice's demands and gives to us instead mercy, mercy for justice. Uh, another statement uh, by uh, Elder Talmadge, which I, I think maybe is a good place to interject it uh, from his book, Jesus the Christ, and talks about the fact that there was this other being in the garden uh, that night. And this is what he says. I apologize. I should have had my my quotations uh, lined up. In, it's in all, all good. All right. So this is from Jesus the Christ, page 613. Quote, Christ's agony in the garden is unfathomable by the finite mind, both as to intensity and cause. He struggled and groaned under a burden such as no other being who has ever lived on the earth might even conceive as possible. It was not physical pain or mental anguish alone that caused him to suffer such torture as to produce an extrusion of blood from every pore, but a spiritual agony of soul such as only God was capable of experiencing. In that hour of anguish, Christ met and overcame all the horrors that Satan, the prince of this world, could inflict. And so, uh, attempting to derail Heavenly Father's plan, Lucifer, I imagine, is trying his very best to thwart the the um, what Jesus uh, was doing in in Gethsemane. Jesus's a resolve and Jesus's strength, his fortitude. Lucifer is trying to just destroy that, and thankfully he is not. Uh, he is not successful. And then the final quote uh, that I think is worth thinking about is one by uh, President Brigham Young, who says basically that the reason that Jesus sweat blood in the garden is because he had always had the power and influence of his heavenly father with him. There was never a time in his life when Jesus didn't feel the power and the help uh, of his heavenly father. But in Gethsemane, it was all completely withdrawn. And so President Young says, if Jesus had had the power of God upon him, he would not have sweat blood, but all was withdrawn from him and a veil was cast over him. And you can imagine a being such as Jesus, who always saw things clearly, who was visionary, who had this uh, intimate relationship with God to the extent that he felt Heavenly Father's power and influence in his life and now has nothing. And so one of the things that I uh, have thought about, and I'm sure you have too, is that this plunges Jesus into the lowest rungs of hell itself. Mm -hmm. Jesus experienced a spiritual death like no other individual has ever experienced. Everything was withdrawn from him. And so he was left completely alone, completely by himself. And so when we even talk about uh, those who, who have separated themselves from God because of behavior, Jesus knows those feelings and so much more, even deeper than that. The, the very environment, the, the most intense environment of hell was experienced by Jesus in Gethsemane. I, I, I don't know 
words kind of fail. Yes. To, to you know, help us to uh, appreciate uh, that. Uh, one of the other things that I, as you have, uh, having lived in Jerusalem for a number of years and 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 lived there a number of times, is um, the fact that there is great symbolism in the name of the place Gethsemane, Gathshemen, the place of the oil press, and the fact that Jesus becomes like the olive in the place called the olive oil press. Jesus is pressed out. He is bruised, he's broken, he's crushed, so that he begins to ooze his life's fluid, his life-giving fluid, just as olives, when they're harvested and they are pressed and processed they yeah. well and crushed initially right crushed and then crushed. pressed yeah and, and and give up their uh life fluid and one of the great lessons for me is that uh it is no it becomes no secret then as to why pure olive oil is used in, in sacred moments of our religious worship we use uh pure olive oil to give blessings we use pure olive oil in the temple to anoint in fact uh, you know better than anybody else the in the ancient temple of solomon all of the accoutrements and the vessels and the things that were in the temple were anointed with pure olive oil a symbol of the repository of god's um the, the hebrew word comes to mind shekinah uh, you know god's presence yes his, his uh, kind of glorious presence or yeah glorious yeah. presence so uh, we have this amazing symbol of jesus's sacrifice in the very olive oil that we use for uh, most sacred events uh there is a medical medical cause uh for jesus's bloody sweat it's called hematodrosis uh it is where uh, and it's very rare, but it has been recorded on occasion where pressure and pain become so acute in an individual that uh, the capillaries of a person's body uh, uh, literally explode or rupture, and out through the pores of the skin comes blood and sweat. And that's what happens to Jesus. The ultimate cause, I think, is what Brigham Young pointed to his father, the withdrawal of his father's influence. There were, now, what's what's the source for that? I actually haven't read that. Um, I'd love to know that. Let me, let me give you uh, two sources. Um, one is a collection of essays by different uh, doctors, and I'll be happy to send this, this sheet to you. I have all the references. But the one that people usually point to is an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, March 21st. Oh, no, no, I meant the Brigham Young source. Sorry. Oh, the Brigham, Brigham Young source. Oh, it's yeah. Journal of Discourses, Volume 3, pages 205 to 206. Okay, thank Journal you. Journal of Discourses, yeah. So anyway, this, this bloody sweat, this horrible disintegration of the very blood vessels that keep you, know, you, yeah. you alive, is uh, is documented uh, medically. Uh, I, I, it's uh, well past time to finish. Let let me maybe draw this to a close, or at least my part of the discussion, uh, by saying uh, we come to appreciate prophetic insight and help us to know that in the garden, 
when Jesus bleeds from every pore, two divine beings suffered. Yes, it was Jesus Christ, to be sure. But also it was his father. And two quotes, if I could share, just take a minute to share these. One is a well-known quote by Melvin J. Ballard, Elder Melvin J. Ballard of the Quorum of the Twelve, who says, quote, In that moment when he might have saved his son, I thank him, meaning God the Father, and praise him that he, di he did not fail us, for he had not only the love of his son in mind, but also a love for us. I rejoice that he did not interfere and that his love for us made it possible for him to endure, to look upon the sufferings of his son and give his son finally to us, our Savior and our Redeemer. Without him, without his sacrifice, we would have remained and we would never have come glorified in his presence. And so this is what it cost in part for our Father in heaven to give the gift of his son to men. And then from our own day and age, we have this magnificent paragraph from Elder Holland. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is from a conference report, April 1999. And it happened to be Easter weekend. And so Elder Holland says, quote, On this Easter weekend, I wish to thank not only the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, but also his true father, our spiritual father in God, who, by accepting the sacrifice of his firstborn perfect son, blessed all of his children in those hours of atonement and redemption. Never more than at Easter time is there so much meaning in the declaration from the book of John, which praises the Father as well as the Son. Quote, For God so loved the world that he gave, <clears throat> that he gave his only begotten Son, <clears throat> that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That, of course, is John 3.16. And then Elder uh, Holland continues, I am a father, inadequate to be sure, but I cannot comprehend the burden it must have been for God in his heaven to witness the deep suffering and crucifixion of his beloved son in such a manner. His every impulse and instinct must have been to stop it, to send angels to intervene. But he did not intervene. He endured what he saw because it was the only way that a saving vicarious payment could be made for the sins of all his other children from Adam to Eve, from Adam and Eve to the end of the world. I am eternally grateful for a perfect father and his perfect son, neither of whom shrank from the bitter cup nor forsook the rest of us who are imperfect, who fall short and stumble, who too often miss the mark. I think that's a powerful uh, insight on, on how Gethsemane affected God the Father as well as God the Son. And, uh, and I'm so uh, grateful uh, to know that. Um, I think um, as the, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus uh, prayed the same prayer three times in between each offering of that same prayer. Jesus got up and checked on the welfare of his apostles because he knew <laughs> that they were experiencing tough times. Um, I think the fact that they're sleeping is an indication of the tremendous depression 
that has washed yeah. over them at this at this point. And I think uh, it also makes it even just a little bit more for the Savior. I mean, when he says, could you not watch with me one hour? I, you get the feeling he also could use their company. And then he finds that it's not what, and he understands. He says, I know yeah. that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But uh, he understands it. But it's still difficult that when he went to his closest mortal associates yeah. uh, for comfort, they're asleep. Yeah. And uh, that causes me to wonder about uh, the the time frame uh, of the Gethsemane experience. He's been praying now for, he says, one hour. I don't know if we take that literally or not, Yeah. but it certainly was more than just a minute or two yeah. uh, in the garden. It was continuous. It was unrelenting. It, it does seem to abate the, 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 the pressure, the pain, the anguish seems to abate. Uh, for a moment or two as Jesus is encouraging his apostles because off in the distance he sees the temple police force coming with him coming yeah. to him with swords and staves and uh, and torches and uh, and then and a betrayer and the betrayer yeah. and and I maybe uh, you uh, you might have a different feeling but I I think I would like to save the discussion of uh, Jesus's arrest uh, for our our next uh, opportunity uh, to talk about the the atonement, and, and rather conclude by simply saying um, that the word that comes to mind after all is said and done is the word substitute. Jesus in Gethsemane, and and on the cross, but in Gethsemane particularly, Jesus became our great substitute uh all of the negative aspects of the fall of our first parents adam and eve jesus absorbed to himself and he experienced uh vicariously in gethsemane all of all of the things that we experience uh one of our colleagues stephen robinson uh, of blessed memory uh, penned some fabulous words uh, that seems so appropriate now. Uh, Brother Robinson said, uh, "All Jesus experienced in Gethsemane all the private griefs and heartaches, all the physical pains and handicaps, all of the emotional burdens and depressions of the human family. He knows the loneliness of those who don't fit in, who aren't handsome or pretty. He knows what it's like to choose up teams, be the last one chosen. He knows the anguish of parents whose children go wrong. He knows these things personally and intimately because he lived them in Gethsemane. Having personally lived a perfect life, he then chose to experience our imperfect lives in that infinite Gethsemane experience, the meridian of time, the center of eternity. Jesus lived a billion, billion lifetimes of sin, pain, disease, and sorrow. And he, if we allow him to transfers all of those bad things in our life to himself and uh, and that and that that was uh the fulfillment of his promise in our pre-mortal existence and of course uh, the infinite gift that uh, that can never be shortchanged or diminished or degraded in any way uh of course like you i have a, a testimony 
of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Um, I love him um, more now than ever before and uh, hope that that the scriptures will come alive to us as we think deeply about what Jesus did for us and his offering to us and how we can make an offering of love back to him by simply taking him up on his offer to suffer the things that the fall of Adam brought about. And I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.